You're about to hear a recording of a live radio program. It's called Indivisible. You can listen live and call in four nights a week on public radio stations around the country or at indivisibleradio.com. You can also join the conversation with hashtag indivisibleradio or leave us a voicemail at indivisibleradio.com. Subscribe now so you don't miss a thing. Okay, here's the show. This is Indivisible, public radio's national conversation about America in a time of change. From WNYC Radio, I'm Charlie Sykes. This is Indivisible, public radio's new live national call-in show for the first 100 days of the Trump administration, and we're only in day 20. And today, the President of the United States, Donald Trump, tweeted out, My daughter Ivanka has been treated so unfairly by Nordstrom. So, officially... Donald Trump has spent more time attacking Nordstrom than Vladimir Putin. Um, And we're not even at the three-week point here. Um, And, of course, it is hard to keep up. By the way, our phone number, 844-745-8255. We're going to be asking questions like, is America actually becoming an autocracy? And do protests make things better or worse? Uh, Just trying to keep up with what's going on. A federal appeals court, of course, you know this. Heard arguments on the travel ban, probably... The most eagerly watched appellate court hearing on a stay pretty much ever. Uh, The good news is that a lot of folks, I think, are getting a renewed appreciation for this idea of checks and balances and why some people have been warning about an imperial presidency. Interestingly enough, uh, Donald Trump's uh, pick to be uh, Supreme Court Justice Judge uh, Neil Gorsuch apparently has uh, now been quoted as uh, telling United States senators that Trump's tweets ripping, mocking the judges, the so-called judges were demoralizing and disheartening. We live in absolutely remarkable times, and an indication of that, maybe maybe the political highlight of the week, was the uh, SNL skit with White House Press Secretary Sean Spicer, brilliantly played by Melissa McCarthy. As you know, President Trump announced his Supreme Court pick on the national TV today when he entered the room the crowd greeted him with a standing ovation which lasted a full 15 minutes and you can check the tape on that everyone was smiling everyone was happy and no one no one was sad okay those are the facts forever and there's something else we got something x three four capital t capital p eight four Hang on. Wait a minute. That's my email password. Forget that. <laughs> well, reportedly, the uh, president's unhappy with that because his spokesman well, was, number one, played by a woman, and he doesn't want his people looking weak. So this may be a problem for the press secretary to the president of the United States because in 2017, White House decisions are apparently influenced by SNL skits. Um, also, I, you know, if possible, uh, in the last seven days since we talked last time, our politics has gotten even more polarized. Betsy DeVos confirmed, but only after the vice president cast a tie-breaking vote. The first time that has ever happened. I have a feeling that's a phrase we're going to be using a lot. Jeff Sessions was also confirmed just a few minutes ago. But but only after Senator Elizabeth Warren was silenced on the Senate floor for, and I'm not making this up, for reading a letter from Coretta Scott King, Martin Luther King Jr.'s widow. Because apparently there must be a contest in D.C. these days for the worst possible political optics. Uh, uh, we also had uh, violent riots on the campus at the University of California at Berkeley over over free speech. We're going to talk about that in the second half, uh, second half hour tonight. But we start, and I'm really looking forward to this, we start with somebody that I have read for years, but I've never actually spoken with. 
David Frum is a longtime conservative who's courageously gone his own way for years, for, for, quite, a, for quite a long time. Um, he is a former presidential speechwriter, and he's often been a lonely voice in the wilderness, and these days are really no exception. Last week, he published what I think may be the single most disturbing, even haunting article about this new political era. His cover story in, in The Atlantic was titled, How to Build an Autocracy. Arguing that the preconditions are present in the United States today, and he thinks the new president may be taking us down this path. Now, if you have any questions about this, our phone number is again, 844-745-8255. And I'm going to admit, this, uh, this article rattled me, and I have a pretty uh, pessimistic view about things in general. But So joining me, David Frum, senior editor of The Atlantic. Good evening, David. How are you? I'm, I'm well. I'm so pleased to talk to you. And as you say, we've never talked before, and that's a real gap in my life, so I'm glad we're able to fix it. Well, I appreciate that. Well, let's just start off. Could, could you just define autocracy? Because you're, you're, you're raising the question that America is, is headed in a direction that none of us ever imagined we'd even be discussing. What do you well, mean? I, I, I want to dispel something or a misapprehension that I think a lot of people have. Um, people are, there are people who get worried about the abuse of power, and they conjure images from 80 years ago. They, they conjure up dictators rant, standing and ranting into radio microphones and goons hogging the sidewalk and secret police. We don't do anything the way we do it, we did it 80 years ago, and we're not going to do this. Um, and if your image, if you're, if, if you're not satisfied that the train is going somewhere bad unless it arrives at Hitler Station, I, I have news for you. There are a lot of stops before Hitler Station. That can be that can be pretty bad. So what I did in this article, and I, I'm ashamed to say I do have somewhat of a criminal mind. I began to think if I were trying to abuse the powers of the presidency in the American context, a highly developed country with police who will not execute wrongful orders, how do you do it? And the goal of the article is to show how it could really happen, how it's happened in Hungary, how it's happening now in post-Mandela South Africa, how it's happening in other de-democratizing countries. You know, you, you start off, and I'll tell you the part that rattled me the most, when you, you, you quote uh, James Russell Lowell, uh, who was a founder of The Atlantic, who uh, back in 1888 said, you know, the Constitution is not a machine that goes by itself. Checks and balances is a, is a metaphor, you write, not a mechanism. And then basically you point out that despite all of the constitutional protections and the institutional traditions, there are some flaws. And, and this is the paragraph that I think I've gone back to again and again. You write, yet the American system is also perforated by vulnerabilities no less dangerous for being so familiar. Supreme among those vulnerabilities is reliance on the personal qualities of the man or woman who wields the awesome powers of the presidency. A British prime minister can lose power in minutes if he or she forfeits the confidence of the majority in parliament. The president of the United States, on the other hand, is restrained first and foremost by his own ethics and public spirit. What happens if somebody comes to the, the, that high office lacking those qualities? And then you lay out all the things that the president can do unrestrained by anyone else. And I think that's what, um, that's what um, I, I, I think sort of set me back to realize that that our constitutional system is not a given if, in fact, you have somebody in that position who does not respect it. That's so right. You know, the United States, among um, – I, I should probably mention here, I, I was born in Canada, and I run a think tank in the United Kingdom. So I spent a lot of time thinking about this from the perspective of other developed countries. And the United States model is not the only model. This is one of the easiest countries in the world in which to be a crooked politician. 
it's very hard to convict someone of taking a bribe in the United States. And after, and you, you, I'm sure, covered this, after the acquittal of Governor Bob McDonald, the former governor of Virginia, um, the Supreme Court laid down a standard that makes it even harder yet to convict, to convict someone for taking a bribe, because you have to show not only did they take the bribe, not only did they do the favor, not only was the bribe taken in exchange for the favor, but the favor must be an official act. And the Supreme Court said, for example, arranging meetings is not considered an official act. If the governor sends somebody, a donor, to meet with the, con the person who has the contract, the, uh, the governor, even though he set up the meeting, the governor is not the, f the person at fault. It's the poor bureaucrat who signs the crooked contract get, is at fault. These, um, and what I worry about where this is applicable to Donald Trump, is I don't think Donald Trump is going to set out to build an authoritarian system. I think he's going to set out to become as rich as he's told everybody all along he really was. The problem for him is that this process raises a lot of ethical clouds, and he's going to have to shut down congressional oversight. He's going to want to neutralize the press. He's going to want to turn off or divert the U.S. attorneys. Uh, he's going to want to keep himself away from the courts because the courts are very hard to pervert in the United States, uh, all in order to... Um, uphold, defend his original wrongful action. And what happened today, that exchange over Nordstrom's... I was, I was going to ask you about that next, yes. Yeah, that's the little appetizer course of what's coming. Tell me why. Because, you know, on, on one level, it sounds so trivial that the president of the United States is defending his daughter by complaining that Nordstrom's is dropping his daughter's products. But where, where does this fit in in the continuum? Well, one, one of the things that Donald Trump has pioneered and this new age of social media makes possible, is the use of intimidation without involving state resources. Let me give you a very concrete example of what that means. Do you remember when that uh, head of the union local at Carrier said some, accused the president of lying about the number of jobs that were uh, saved by his intervention and, and uh, Vice President Pence's intervention at the Carrier plant? Now, if the president of the United States were to say to the head of the FBI, I want you to send some agents to harass that man, the head of the FBI, of course, would not do mm -hmm. it. Uh, and if there were some FBI agent or some head weak enough to do it, you'd go to court, and the courts would instantly put a stop to it. Donald Trump didn't turn to the FBI. He sent out a tweet that mobilized an online troll army of people who sent that poor union local head into hiding. Because what has happened with trolling, and I think you have been a victim of this, is it has now leaped the barrier from the virtual to the real world. People are no longer content just to send you nasty messages online, as upsetting and frightening as that can be. They actually show up at your house. In some cases, they will show up at the house of your aged mother. Uh, um, they will go to your children's school. Many people have experienced this in this past year. Yeah. I, I, I don't think th this is, I'm not sure that, uh, that uh, the general public fully understands the extent to which this culture of intimidation does shape, I, I think, a lot of the debate. I, th I think it explains a lot of the unwillingness of people both in the private sector and the public sector to stand up because this is it, it is it is rather extraordinary and when you experience it it is um it it uh, it's something frankly that you don't expect in this country we um i have three children um they're two of them are older now we used to take them to birthday parties at comet pizza a gunman showed up at comet pizza this is a pizzeria and ping pong place in northwestern washington very popular with sort of the media and people working government very aimed at sort of people who are living on a government salary, um, friendly place, um, nice pizza. It's nothing, <laughs> they don't have sex slaves in the basement, I hasten to add. Um, a gunman shows up there and fires around into the floor. 
thank God nobody was hurt, but the place is teeming with children all the time. How did that happen? Well, the, um, there's this crazy rumor that was publicized by the son of the National Security Advisor that there was, there was a, this Clinton-led sex trafficking ring right out of this pizza place. And a gunman came, to, and he, God bless him, was moral enough and rational enough to realize when he got there that what he'd been told was not true and he didn't hurt anybody, thank goodness. Um, but it is, the, it is this kind of mobilization that substitutes for goons and thugs and secret militias. We're not going to have that, but the online troll army does the same job. And then on the flip side of this, you also have the delegitimization of, of independent institutions, his obsession with the media, his obsession with going with attacking judges. And you write about all of this, that the modern strongman you know, doesn't necessarily have to suppress the media. He just discredits journalism as an institution by denying that such a thing as independent judgment can exist. All reporting serves as an agenda. There is no truth, only competing attempts to grab power. And I think that's kind of the key, uh, David, is, is that it's not just that you have a president who puts out false information. It is sort of an attack on the concept that truth is, in fact, knowable. This, this article started um, as an article about Hungary, actually. I spent a couple of weeks in Hungary. I've been very interested in Eastern Europe for a long time. I spent a couple of weeks in Hungary in the spring. And I wrote about the snuffing out of Hungarian democracy. Uh, by Viktor Orban, the prime minister there. And the Atlantic, we have pressure on space. We, we didn't, we, they said we can't run 7,000 words on, on Hungary. I'm sorry, David. Um, so I kept my notes. And then when Donald Trump appeared, I realized he's using the Viktor Orban playbook. Now, it needs to be understood, Viktor Orban, the prime minister of Hungary, has not wrongfully arrested anybody. He certainly hasn't killed anybody. Um, he has no concentration camps. Um, he does have some private goons, but the private goons never lay hands on people. They will sort of shoulder them off the sidewalk, I mean, literally in one case, but they don't use direct personal violence. Hungary is a member of the European Union. It's a signatory to the European Convention on Human Rights. There are direct air flights to Heathrow Airport twice a day. Uh, it's a modern country, and so and, they, and the Internet is unrestricted. But they don't have a free press anymore. Mm. And what one of the things that Viktor Orban does, one of his tricks, Hungary was a German ally during World War II. And many of the people who are not Nazi or fascist sympathizers were also important people in Hungarian literary or cultural life. So whenever he's in trouble, he'll find some person from 1938 who did something important in Hungarian culture but also was on the wrong side of World War II, and he'll put up a statue to him. And then the Jews will go crazy, mm -hmm. and the liberals will go crazy, and there'll be a story in the BBC and another one in the New York Times. And Orban will turn to the Hungarians and say, you see, I stand between you and them. So he, fo and, he fosters that kind of, of dissension. He fosters exactly. that kind of upheaval. And Orban is not a Nazi. Orban's not a fascist. But he knows how to play on those emotions. And by the way, along the way, he's become the biggest landowner in the entire country. You have another line that, I, that jumped out at me. Um, a would-be kleptocrat is, is actually better served by spreading cynicism than by deceiving fo uh, followers with false beliefs. Believers can be disillusioned. People who expect, though, to hear only lies can hardly complain when a lie is exposed. The inculcation of cynicism breaks down the distinction between those forms of media that try their imperfect best to report the truth and those that purvey falsehoods for reasons of profit or ideology. So the New York Times becomes the equivalent of Russia's RT, the Washington Post of Breitbart, NPR of InfoWars. And, you know, we really have seen this, haven't we, David? This yes. whole concept of false, of, of fake news, how the administration and, and his supporters, you know, uh, have been— 
able to basically turn that around to any stories they do not like. So CNN now becomes fake news. Well, the classic example of this is that story about Time Magazine and the Martin Luther King hit. So a uh, Time Magazine reporter was in the Oval Office. There was a big crowd. He was used to seeing the bust of Martin Luther King in a certain place. The view was blocked. He didn't see it. And he tweeted. He didn't write in the story, but he tweeted that the bust was gone. And then within minutes, he saw that he had made a mistake. He corrected it uh, on his own tweet, uh, Twitter timeline. The magazine apologized for it. Uh, it. No one's perfect, and people make mistakes. Um, and the test of accurate media is not that you never make a mistake, but that you care about truth and you have mechanisms for correcting your errors when you make them. And the Trump people seize on this and say, this acquits us of our program of deliberate lying, that when you didn't see a bust because the view was blocked and you make a mistake that lasts for, I don't know, eight, nine, or 14 minutes. That's the same as us inventing a terrorist incident that never happened and propagating across a range of media platforms in order to make a point. You know, I want to uh, get, uh, after we're going to take a break in a, in a, in a, in a short while, but I, you have written two pieces, actually, that deal with the question of now, uh, what do you do about this uh, protest? And you write, civil unrest will not be a problem for the Trump presidency. It will be a resource. Trump will likely want not to repress it, but to publicize it. And the conservative entertainment outrage complex will eagerly assist him. Immigration protesters marching with Mexican flags, Black Lives Matter demonstrators bearing anti-police slogans. These are the images of the opposition that Trump will wish his supporters to see. The more offensively the protesters behave, the more pleased Trump will be. Are you concerned that the protests are going to backfire and actually embolden and enhance Trump's power? I am hugely concerned about this. And look, this is where I, I think you and I find ourselves in similar situations, which is we, we are very conservative people. Um, we're now sort of in a new neighborhood surrounded by um, new associates. Uh, and, and yet we, that's, it's not our first language, and a lot of the things they do are very puzzling. And uh, I, in particular, I've worked in the Bush administration, was on the receiving end. In fact, at one point, I find myself literally in the middle of uh, an anti-Iraq war protest in Trafalgar Square at the most intense moment of the buildup to the Iraq war, and was surrounded by people. And I am just struck at how these protests are engineered to fail. Mm. That they are, they, they speak to the most radical fringe of the already committed. They're not singing to the choir. They're singing to the mezzo-sopranos. Yeah. Well, let, let, let's, let's, I'm going to go open up the phone lines on this question because this is fascinating. You, you have a very interesting piece giving some advice on how to do this right. Our number is 844-745-8255. Uh, we're going to hear more from David Frum and take more of your calls after the break. Indivisible is supported by Blue Apron, delivering gourmet recipes, pre-selected portions, and fresh ingredients to customers' doors. More at blueapron.com slash indivisible. This is Indivisible, Public Radio's national conversation about America in a time of change. 
Charlie Sykes, broadcasting from WNYC in New York, and I have David Frum on the line, senior editor of The Atlantic, former speechwriter for George W. Bush. If you, if you want to join the conversation, call us at 844-745-TALK. Now, David, I want to make it clear, you're, the end of your, um, your piece of the warning about American autocracy is really a plea to people to get involved, to you yes. want people to become active but your concern that they might choose the wrong kind of activism that will actually boomerang. I'm extremely pessimistic about congressional oversight. Um, I'm very worried about the federal um, bureaucracy, that it will be able to be suborned. Uh, the courts I have confidence in, but the courts are weak, um, and it's easy to stay out of them. The check on abuse of presidential power, both the kleptocracy and the autocracy we're going to see coming from Donald Trump, is public opinion. Uh, and we've seen a lot of demonstrations and mobilization. But yes, I worry that people are doing it the wrong way because the liberal left movements on which this resistance are going to be, is going to be based have a vision of how to do politics that's based on self-expression, not on persuasion. I just get the sense that both sides right now are appealing to their bases, you know, so that you have some of these protests. And some of the protests have, have been, been, been very, very effective, um, have been by and large peaceful. But if you're Donald Trump, you, you don't mind if the public face of the opposition is, is Madonna. You don't mind. Beautiful. Um, if, Couldn't if, be if, better. Yeah, I mean, th- th- this actually works to, to his point. Uh, let's go to the, uh, the phones. I want to hear what people have to say about this. Let's go to uh, Hazlitt. Hazlitt, New Jersey. George, uh, you're on with David Frum. Hi, guys. How are you? Good evening, George. Thank you. Good evening. Um, this, the protest, we have to do something more because the people are in Congress. They're sitting in their little offices. They don't care about people outside protesting. It does nothing to them. We have members of Congress that are in there for life. They're in there for 40, 50 years. They have no problem. They got to, you know, I mean, everything has to be a 50-50 and a one-vote split. You don't notice that's not peculiar. And you say that news isn't fake. Well, so what do you do? What do you do, George? No, but I'm saying we have to do, I don't know, but I, I guess the old-fashioned way, we got to go in there and literally grab these people and literally throw them out of Congress. They've been in there too long. They no longer represent the people but George, at all. George, and we usually throw people, out of, we throw people out of Congress by, by um, unelected. No, physically, no, we have to physically go down there you want and throw riot. them out. You want to physically <laughs> assault members of Congress, and that will work in what way? See, David, this is part of the problem, and I hope people yeah. don't misunderstand, but, you know, this is where, and I've seen this before. I come from Wisconsin, where we had a lot of protests. <laughs> yes. and, and, and let me tell you how Wisconsin played out. Um, Scott Walker was losing that Act 10 fight uh, considerably. He was way underwater. The protesters became so overwrought in some ways, so, I think, addicted to their melodrama, that they flipped the script. And uh, public opinion turned because of exactly the kind of thing you're talking about. They're not able, as you put it, to police their radical fringes. And so the most obnoxious and kind of violent behavior is the stuff that becomes memorable and becomes the face of the movement. And I, I would agree with you because I've actually seen how you can take a winning issue and turn it into a losing issue if you do not restrain the more extreme elements. The most effective mass mobilization of my adult lifetime is Mothers Against Drunk Driving. Yes. They completely won. <laughs> They've transformed the country. And anybody who doesn't believe me needs to watch old episodes of the Dean Martin show on YouTube. I just think what people thought was funny in 1969 that you could never put on TV today. <laughs> Let's go back to the phone. Let's go to uh, Kirk from uh, Rifle, Colorado. Uh, Kirk, good evening. How are you? Good, and you? Good. 
Thank you for calling in. Uh, yes, I just wanted to uh, say uh, the protests, you know, really don't accomplish much. Uh, we're going to have to depend on the Senate and, and Congress for checks and balances. But I do think we really need to set term limits because we need younger people representing a younger society in America. You know, my first reaction to that is, David, is that I'm not sure that we have time to wait for the term limits. The, 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 the checks and the balances are going to have to play out in very real time in a very short period of time. Yes. What do you think? Mothers Against Drunk Driving, which I praised a minute ago, had a very concrete demand. And I think that's what the restrained Donald Trump movement needs. And I, I, have, I have two nominees of the things that you should be asking for if you're active in politics. The first is... Congress should pass a law calling, requiring the federal, sorry, the Treasury Secretary to release the tax returns of the president, the vice president, and any nominee of a major party. Um, that's completely constitutional. It can be done, act of Congress, uh, and it would make a transformative difference. And the second demand is an independent, non-congressional commission to look into Russian involvement in the 2016 election. When you do those two things, you've done a lot. You, you say focus, and, pick your fights. Unlimited efforts on behalf of limited goals. What about the people who would say, well, the conservatives had their Tea Party, and that turned out to be magnificently successful, at least in terms of winning elections. You may not agree with the Tea Party. Um, you know, wasn't that a, isn't that a successful model? So how, how can you turn around and tell the left not to have their own version of the Tea Party? Well, I've written a lot about why I think the Tea Party was a fiasco. And I, I won't take your time here with that, about why it was completely counterproductive from a Republican point of view. But what I say is... Even if you think it's the greatest thing in the world, times change, you have a new problem. If you look, if you're just a big liberal and you feel about Donald Trump that he's no different from Marco Rubio or Jeb Bush, then by all means, go have your liberal tea party and fight for abortion and um, uh, more uh, the military having to have a bake sale whenever they want a bomber um, and all of those things. Go do that, just as if it were Marco Rubio. If you think this is a unique threat, then you're going to have to work with different kinds of people in different kinds of ways. You're going to have to say, um, my brother-in-law who loves Rush Limbaugh, how do I get him to realize we don't want the Russians picking our president? Yeah. Uh, and you, look, you want a right-wing president, I want a liberal president, but we both agree that president should be picked by Americans, not by Russians. A unique challenge requires a unique response. Uh, let's, uh, let's go to uh, Rochester, New York. Linda from Rochester, I think you want to uh, challenge uh, David on this. Good evening. Uh, yes, thank you very much. Um, I just wanted to say that a peaceable dissent and assembly is a fundamental right. It's loud, it's messy, and the louder it is, the more I like it, frankly. And uh, it gives me hope when I see that, that I'm not alone. And I want to point out that when there's silence, uh, there's a lot of risk in that, too, so that the Trump people can say, see, no problems here, we all agree. And I also want to add that no matter what we do, it will be cynically used to malign any sort of dissent. So I'm all for a protest. And the, and, and the louder the better. Okay, David. Um, well, well, she, well, she's right, of course. I mean, dissent makes us feel unified. Well, it is a fundamental American right. Peaceful protest is your right. And these days, uh, taking a Glock with you uh, to the kindergarten also is often your right. Um, we don't, then we ask ourselves, is this an, am I using my rights in an intelligent way to advance things I care about? The goal here is not to express your feelings. The goal is to build a broad coalition. If you believe, if you, as I say, if you just think this is the same as Marco Rubio and you want the military to have bake sales for bombers, then fine. But if 
one agrees, and this is what I think coming from a pretty conservative place, that Donald Trump is different. He's like no president we've ever had before. You know, I actually, quite a lot of things he's going to do, I'm going to agree with. Uh, and I'm willing to set that aside because I think even though I'm going to like a lot of what he's going to do, I don't like the way he's going to do it. And I care about that more. I've dis- Something I've discovered. I care about our constitutional system more. You know, I care is, about getting my way. It is interesting how people have sort of rediscovered that. You, you know, a lot of the people that I talk to, though, and you, you address this, basically have this kind of American sense, you know what, it's going to be okay. We've had bad presidents before. Um, America is strong. America is robust. There are just too many barriers um, to, you know, a, a president running amok. So the, the Constitution is stronger than the man. You're your article rattled me because it really challenges that premise. The belief that everything is going to be okay is itself the greatest threat to everything turning out okay. And and maybe I, I, I'll end here with a, I don't know how many of your listeners are Bible readers, but um, they may know the story of Jonah, uh, who, the prophet who ended up inside the whale. Why did Jonah end up inside the whale? God told him, go preach to the city of Nineveh and tell them they're going to be destroyed unless they repent. And Jonah said, I don't want to do that. And he ran away. And when he was caught, God confronted him and said, why would you do that? And Jonah said, I know what was going to happen. I was going to call on the people of Nineveh to repent, lest they be destroyed, and they would repent, and you would forgive them because you are a forgiving God, and my credibility as a pundit would be completely destroyed. (laughs) (laughs) And he gets one of the more memorable scoldings in the Bible as a result. David. David Frum, thank you so much for joining me. I appreciate it very, very much. And by the way, if you have not read uh, uh, David's piece in The Atlantic, definitely do so. We have links to it at uh, indivisible.com. It's been a real pleasure, David. Charlie Sykes, and uh, we're broadcasting live from WNYC. That was a fascinating discussion um, with David from I'm joined in studio by another, uh, you know, somebody that I've really been looking forward to talking with, uh, Nico Perino, who works with an organization that I have followed for many years, FIRE, the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education. Uh, yep. Thanks for, for coming in. Well, let's talk about this. You know, if we're going to have a conversation, uh, one of the things we have to talk about is what are we free to say and what are we not free to say? So let's just jump right into this. A week ago, we saw the campus at the University of California, Berkeley, burning. Now, most mm-hmm. of the protesters were peaceful, but they were burning. They were they were rioting because they did not want a speaker named Milo Yiannopoulos to be able to speak on campus. And their argument was that he was not engaging in free speech, he was engaging in hate speech. So, by the way, I want to open up this 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 call this question to the audience: Is hate speech free speech? Should university campuses be open forums, or is there some place to draw the line? So, so Nico, let's just talk about this. You know, th- this this case is hate speech free speech, and how should universities handle it? Yeah, well, in America, we have something called the First Amendment, and the courts have made it very clear 
that hate speech is free speech. I mean, you've had the Supreme Court um, putting down decisions defending people like the Westboro Baptist Church to protest outside of soldiers' funerals. Uh, what you have at Berkeley is essentially mob censorship. You have uh, mob violence to shut down an opinion. And that is inimical to our liberal tradition. It is inimical to First Amendment principles. The way to fight speech that you dislike is with more speech. And I think the vast majority of Americans agree with that principle. Well, what about the people who say, though, Milo, and let's not make it all about Milo, but Milo is is an alt-right poster boy. Um, He has, you know, he's trafficked with white nationalism, anti-Semitism. He likes this sort of thing. He likes to troll. He likes to get attention. Mm -hmm. Um, The the riot was probably the best PR that that he's ever had. But how do you respond to people who say that that they feel that, that his kinds of racist and bigoted attacks are actually a form of assault, that it that there is free speech if it's about ideas, but when it is like Milo, it is harassment, it makes them feel unsafe. Yeah, that's an argument we're seeing a lot on college campuses right now, and I think it's it has the wrong mindset. I think there's actually something invaluable about knowing what people actually believe. Um, the founder of FIRE, uh, co-founder of FIRE, Harvey Silverglade, he's a Jewish man, he said, I want to know what the Nazi in the room believes. And I want to know that because I know I want to know that I shouldn't turn my back. Yeah, but why should why should a public university provide a forum for the Nazi in the room? Well, I, America has a long tradition tradition mm-hmm. actually to giving um, a platform to those sorts of speakers on college campuses. There is a professor at Brown, and his name escapes me right now, who in the '60s and '70s said he learned a lot by having a Nazi speak at Brown. Um, he initially was invited, the university disinvited, and there's a group of very liberal students who said, no, we need to know what his opinions are, because truth has a greater conception in confrontation with error. Well, the concept of academic freedom mm-hmm. seems to be very central to American higher education, and, and everyone involved in higher education will talk about the importance of academic freedom. And academic freedom is based on the premise that you have a clash of ideas, exactly. that you go to a university in order to be uh, exposed to ideas that are different than, you, than yours. I mean, it, there is no right not to be offended. If you don't want to ever hear any idea that you disagree mm-hmm. with, you should probably go to a monastery, not to a university. But having said that, in institutions that are based on academic freedom, there does seem to be a lot of resistance to what you're saying, a lot of resistance to the idea that that, that there ought to be forums for Every kind of speech, even the kind of speech that might turn your stomach. Yes, yes. So we at FIRE like to say that if you go to college for four years and you've never heard an idea that you disagree with, even an idea that you vehemently disagree with, you should probably ask for your money back. And and why is this? Because confrontation with error, even if you think an idea is bad, you get a greater conception of truth through confrontation with that error. So take, for example, flat earthers. You and I probably have never confronted one of those people. But if someone was to come up to you and argue that the earth is flat, and this is something that Christopher Hitchens talked about a lot, how would you respond? You probably wouldn't have your arguments right in the back of your head because you've never had to present those arguments. Um, Gravity. You know, we take gravity as a given in this world, but we never have to argue with people who disagree with gravity. Or you don't have to listen. You can not go to the event. If somebody says, I want to explain to you why the earth is flat, I will say, hey, you know, I really got this thing I got to do. I I am busy. I don't need to do this. Now, your organization puts out, and I, I follow this very, very closely, you put out a report card on the state of free speech on campuses. And um, if I'm right, your most recent one talks about 
what it certainly sounds like a trend toward having actually speech police on campuses. Actually, yeah. I mean, we've had speech codes, but what what are speech police? So we, you're actually referencing our recent report that came out this week about bias response teams. And these are teams on campus uh, put together to try and police speech that is perceived to be biased or hurtful to people. And some universities, they have a mechanism to punish people for this. And what they ask students and faculty members to do is this. If you see an incident of bias, report it to us. You can do so anonymously even. Pretty much as if you hear something, say something technique on college campuses. But this creates a chilling effect on free speech because often what they're asking students and faculty members to do is to report constitutionally protected speech. Mm-hmm. And if you're at a public university bound by the First Amendment, that's prohibited. If you're at a private university that promises free speech, that might be a violation of its contractual promises. But this is very, this is a very chilling development. And one thing that we found in our analysis of the schools that have bias response teams is something like 40% of these teams have police on them. So what you have here are literally speech police looking at reports of bias on campus and determining whether those reports are actionable. You know, I know a lot of campuses have their safe spaces and they have the list of microaggressions and you have... uh... Um, orientation sessions for various groups. Does any campus in America actually have an orientation uh, session on free speech? Like, let's have let's have a mandatory camp. Let's talk about why we talk about things. Let's talk about what academic freedom means and what you should expect at a university in terms of being, a, you know, associated with these ideas. That's a great question, Charlie, because there actually no is one. one. There is one. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, Mitch Daniels at Purdue and his team uh, there, I forget the committee that put it together, put together a video and a program around you know, free speech principles. What does it mean to be at a university that proclaims to be have the marketplace of ideas that is bound by the First Amendment? And FIRE actually contributed a video to that series, a short five-minute video, um, educating students All about right. their well, First Amendment let's rights. Let's keep, keep dialing us at 844-745-TALK. I want to just dump in, jump into this whole question of hate speech, free speech. We have to take another break. You're listening to Indivisible Public Radio's National Conversation in a Time of Change. I am Charlie Sykes. We'll be right back. Indivisible is supported by Blue Apron, delivering gourmet recipes, pre-selected portions, and fresh ingredients to customers' doors. More at blueapron.com slash indivisible. Indivisible, Public Radio's national conversation about America in a time of change. This is Charlie Sykes at the WNYC Studios in New York. We're talking about what we can talk about and what we can't talk about. And here with me in studio is Nico Perino, the Director of Communications for the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education and the host of So to Speak, the Free Speech Podcast. Our number is 844-745-TALK. That is 844 844- Seven four five eighty two fifty five. You can also tweet us with the hashtag Indivisible Radio. You used the term mob censorship before. Yes. What do you mean by that? I mean what you saw at Berkeley last Wednesday when a group of about 150 members of what's called the Black Bloc showed up in all black and broke windows, lit fires, threw Molotov cocktails in an effort, in this case, to censor Milo Yiannopoulos. And we were talking earlier in the show about how free speech – if you know, there's some there's something about it that jives with our liberal tradition. But even if you're not one of the people that believes in it, 
from a constitutional perspective or from a moral perspective. You should believe in it from a tactical perspective. You had the mob censorship at Berkeley on Wednesday night. And what happened after that is Milo Yiannopoulos' message got broadcast on cable news for two hours straight. He's live on Tucker Carlson. His book on Amazon, which comes out next month, shot up to number one on the bestsellers rankings. And you know what he garnered from it? He garnered the moral high ground. Which, if you are a protester and you believe in effective protesting tactics, that is not one of them. That's exactly right. Uh, let's go to the phones. Let's go to Bloomington, Indiana. Isaac, you are on the air. Good evening. Yes, hi. Uh, thank you for taking my call. Uh, I just uh, kind of wanted to call in. Um, earlier this week, uh, I believe it was Sunday night, uh, there was a group of people who uh, posted um, some flyers around uh, IU's campus Um and uh, when, you know, of course, Monday morning when uh, classes resumed, uh, you know, the administration. What kind of group was it? What was the group? Uh, I, I can't remember the it name of it. It was a pro, oh, um, a white you know, European heritage type okay. organization. Uh, but but it, but the the, mm. thing, the one thing I wanted to say is uh, the physical flyers that they put up. I, I think it it had a uh, picture of Michelangelo's David, and it had, and I'm paraphrasing here. It had, you know, respect your European heritage, you know, or, or something along those lines. Uh, but the response from our uh, from the administration was uh, to it, it was hate speech, and we. Uh, uh, our president contacted the FBI field office, which is also in Bloomington, uh, to do an investigation. Uh, but, but I think they completely overreacted because several years ago, uh, when you know I work at IU now, but when I was a student several years ago, maybe ten years ago, we did have an event where people put up some flyers of very inflammatory uh, slogans and images uh, around the multicultural student center uh, around the is there, a, is, there a, is there a line is there a line Nico that would be crossed with the really inflammatory thing I mean what 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 if they did have really inflammatory um, images is, yeah. there, is there any line well I want to say by way of starting this, I'm a graduate of IU. Oh, so um, uh, I'm, I'm very familiar with the situation. It's been on my Facebook news feeds. And I was very troubled by what the caller said, uh, reference there, with the administration getting the FBI involved. Because this, this speech, although it is offensive to the vast majority of students at IU, is protected expression if it was put up by a student group. If, if those students who are expressing those opinions have the right to be there. And it's very problematic that the administration is saying there are some viewpoints that are allowed on campus and there are some viewpoints that are not. And the administration alone yeah. is the authority allowed to determine it. And there's nothing wrong, though, with answering this stuff by saying, okay, that's idiot speech. You Bear are, witness you, to your beliefs. You, you are, you're an idiot. You're a moron. We're going to have our own event and we're not going to pay any attention to you as opposed to giving you the moral high ground. Yeah. Let's go back to, uh, let's go to Cincinnati. Cincinnati, Ohio. Melanie, you're, uh, you're on the air. Good evening. Good evening. Thank you for taking my call. Um, I was just going to say that it's a very convoluted subject because even though it is in the Constitution to have free speech, when you have hate speech and you put it on a platform, it validates it to some extent or to some people. That's why it upsets them because it gives them more uh, more power, if you will. And then more people then decide to say more things and create more hate, and then it just creates more hate on the other side. So I think we need to have conversations more in private as well as to what it means. Uh, 
but it does give but some you can counter that speech you, well yes that's true uh, unless you counter it unless you expose it unless you use speech to push back on it well we're trying to do that with the elected president to some extent but it keeps backfiring so what would you recommend uh, well, In- okay what would you recommend well, i wouldn't say that it's necessarily backfired with the current president what you saw i think it was last weekend or two weekends ago in, res- in response to his ban on immigration uh from a from seven countries was protesters taking to the streets. And within hours, they went back and said, no, 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 if you're a legal immigrant, you can come here. They rolled back their messaging on that a lot and maybe rolled back some of the policies that were they were trying to put in place. So I think the protests did have some sort of effect. But I, I, want, I want to throw a, a little wrinkle here. Is there a distinction in your mind between universities, public universities themselves sponsoring the speech with tax dollars or student dollars so that if the University of Wisconsin were to bring in, you know, a notorious bigot paying that person with, with, with money, do you make any distinction between that and, say, an, a group, a individual student group that is allowed to bring them in? Is this a distinction without a difference? Um no, we we at FIRE do not make that okay. distinction. One of the things that you've seen happen in a, a, on campuses across the country is what we call disinvitation season, right. when administrations do exactly that. They invite commencement speakers to speak on campus. And they're all political conservatives who get disinvited. Sometimes, or they're Bill Maher. Yeah, I mean, I want, right. I want to make clear to the yeah. listeners that censorship isn't something that just comes from the left. It also comes from the right. And we do an analysis of these sort of disinvitations that happen on campus, and you find it's almost 50-50. You know, you get Bill Ayers disinvited from campus, yeah. Bill Maher, and then you get people like Milo Yiannopoulos, who had the most disinvitations yeah, I, this year. I, 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 here's my take on, on – I mean, Milo um, Milo is a pretty vile character, and, and it, you, you made a good, very good point about how he has been promoted by all of this. Um, I do think that even vile speakers, you know, have a First Amendment right to speak. No one is required to go there. I, I think that, you know, speech should be matched with speech. I have to admit, though, I really question the judgment, separating the free speech issue, the judgment of the college Republicans and organizations like Turning Point USA, this conservative student organization, which has decided to embrace an alt-right figure. So there's also just the question of you have the right to do something. Is it the right thing to do if you are a conservative young person on campus? You know, um, is it more important that you are trolling, that you're doing something that's going to make liberal heads explode? Or do you actually want to, you know, present your views in a way that would be respected? And I would think that a lot of young conservatives would want to be running as far uh, away from these kinds of ideas as possible. And it's not as if there's a shortage of other people on campus who would also generate a response. Ben Shapiro, who mm-hmm. I think is an outstanding conservative, who is... Um, uh, I, I think one of the uh, you know br- brighter minds, he has also encountered these kinds of, of protests. So that if you really want to, if, if the point is to show intolerance, you don't need to bring the bigot. You can actually bring a smart, intelligent, mainstream conservative. Yeah, you can. And, you know, we at FIRE, we don't get into the tactics right. of what certain groups, uh, who certain groups invite or not. But what we have seen is that universities across the country are imposing security fees on what they perceive to be controversial speakers. You want to bring Milo Yiannopoulos to your campus, you got to pay $10,000 from security. And the courts have held that that is a unconstitutional burden on speech and requires um, government institutions to determine uh, essentially whether, on a viewpoint basis, 
whether a speech is too controversial. We call that a speech tax. It's well, a tax on controversial speech. President Donald Trump responded to that 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 incident at at, at Berkeley last week with with a tweet threatening to withdraw all public uh, all you know federal funds from Berkeley. Any thoughts on that? Yeah. Well, uh, my initial thought is that he does not have a vehicle to do that right now. There. Federal funds are tied to university funding for certain civil rights, but free speech isn't one. I mean, theoretically, he could um, pass a law through Congress uh, that would give him the authority to do that. But right now, he does not. So, Let's, uh, let's go to uh, Highland Lakes, New Jersey. Mark from Highland Lakes, you're on the air. Good evening. Hi, good evening. Uh, thanks for taking the call. Uh, very insightful um, discussion here. And, you know, I have a lot of concerns for young people. Um, and, you know, it's, I think it's a healthy thing that people are speaking up. But I wonder if, you know, maybe we shouldn't be fighting ignorance with ignorance. That, that, you know, maybe the students should be taking the high ground and not be baited. Uh, okay, so give me the, an example. So so you bring, you bring somebody on campus who is his offensive. What should the response of the campus community and the students be? Yeah, that's a tricky one. I mean, I, I think, you know, he, he, Berkeley is not the kind of place where a guy like that uh, would be welcome in the first place. So he should have known better. Well, no, they uh, did but, know better. You know, don't, guy, don't you think that they wanted that response? Didn't they go in there with the desire to be provocative? That was their plan, right? The protesters yeah. at Berkeley? No, yeah, no, no, the, bringing, so, in, bringing in Milo. Oh, yeah, certainly. When, 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 you, when you say that somebody is a provocateur, you're basically saying they want to provoke something, right? That they, that they, would, that they would do that. Uh, let's go to Clifton, New Jersey. Sheila from Clifton, you're on the air. Good evening. Hi, um, Mr. Sykes. I'm so excited. I'm a big fan. I've been watching you on MSNBC. I'm very excited to hear you on NPR now. Thank you. Um, my viewpoint is that the schools cannot be sensitive to who they invite, um, the First Amendment has to be protected, especially now in this day and age when I feel that the Constitution is being threatened. Uh, the school's primary motivation is to present different points of view, and it should not be concerned with whether a uh, speaker is going to offend a certain group or not. And if that is the case, as your uh, guest and yourself has have mentioned, speech that is offensive to one group is fought with speech. Speech, you know, mm -hmm. they, they need to organize and not by disinviting uh, the speaker, but by uh, perhaps having another speaker sure. with to counter the provocateur that Sheila, you actually made a really good point that I wish I would have made a little bit earlier, that if there's ever been a time when people across the political spectrum should understand the importance of the Bill of Rights and constitutional protections and limitations on what government could do, this would be the time, right? Because the whole point of the First Amendment is to say, here is what government is not permitted to do, no matter who is in office, no matter who controls the White House, who controls the Congress. They are not allowed to take away these fundamental rights. And I would think that you would want, uh, whether you're left or right, want to build a pretty strong, since we're building walls, let's build a wall around the Bill of Rights. Yeah, okay. and there's one last point I want to make. We're talking a lot about freedom of speech here. But that freedom of speech is a two-sided coin. It also means the freedom to listen. And someone else in 
has been in the news lately, Frederick Douglass. And in 1860, he gave a speech, a plea for free speech in Boston, after a mob censored a group discussion about how slavery should be abolished. And he said this. He said, to suppress free speech is a double wrong. It violates the rights of the hearer as well as those of the speaker. It is just as criminal to rob a man of his right to speak and hear as it would be to rob him of his money. And I think a lot of people would do well to remember that today. Hmm. Let's go to uh, Brooklyn. BJ from Brooklyn, you're on the air. Good evening. Yes, good evening. How are you doing? Good. Uh, hello? Yes, go ahead. I believe there's a red herring in the arguments that's being presented. Uh, we're all talking about the Bill of Rights. Mm-hmm. Within the Bill of Rights, also the freedom of assembly, the freedom of association. Therefore, my association or my choice to associate with whom I choose to associate does not trump or negate your freedom of speech. And your speech should not trump my willingness or my um, acquiescence to my association. Okay, so your ar- your argument would be that so the campus would then be able to say, you know, they, they have the right to determine who they associate with, and if you don't want to associate with certain speech, is that what you're, you're, you're putting them in conflict? Uh, Nico, your response to that? Yeah, well, we see this debate sort of on campus right now with the safe space movement. And safe spaces are defined differently by different people. But for many people, it means the right to freely associate with other people around a shared set of beliefs. Now, where that becomes problematic is when those safe spaces get manifest destiny and say that my entire campus is a safe space, and there are certain viewpoints that if I do not agree with, I get to proscribe from campus, and that's problematic. So you have your right to freedom of association, but you don't get to expand that association to people who do not voluntarily choose to be there. There's another point here. You know, we've been talking about hate speech versus free speech, and I, and I, and I put it out there because I wanted to be a little bit provocative, but, but also to, to understand that people's definition of hate can differ rather radically. And if we decide uh, you have free speech, you're free to say anything you want, except if it falls into this category, then the question is who determines whether it falls into this category? Because I think that I've seen in the past how there are, you know, in, particularly in a politically polarized world, all you do is say, well, I don't like your ideas. I really disagree with your ideas, and, and therefore we're going to um, discredit them completely by calling it hate speech. So I caution people against creating categories of non-freedom. Yes, and I'm a free speech advocate. It's what I do full time, and I hate censorship. You know, if we were de- determining what hate speech is, I would probably categorize censorship in that area. But we need to understand who's in power today. And if you oppose Donald Trump, well, he's the authority who would ultimately be responsible through the executive branch and enforcement arms of government for punishing for for punishing hate speech. And what do you think Donald Trump is going to say is hate speech? So does this apply to private universities as well? Is there a difference between public and private universities in this debate? Yes, there is a distinction as far as the law goes. So public universities are bound by the First Amendment. Uh, Private universities are bound by the contractual promises they make to students. So if Yale University, for example, and they do say this, says that students are free to think the unthinkable, discuss the unmentionable, and challenge the unchallengeable. Now, if you're a student matriculating at Yale, Mm -hmm. I would take that that promise seriously. And if you're a faculty member, that means you get to explore, you know, the world of ideas. And when a university like Yale or like uh, Harvard, for example, reneges on that promise, they are, they are breaking a promise to students that those students should take very seriously. I think we have time for one more call uh, from Brooklyn. Alex from Brooklyn, you are on the air. Good evening. Yes, good evening. I'm a PhD candidate and, and I, uh, I sort of appreciate, you know, that as we're sort of going through formulating our ideas and 
and so on, that we need that dialectic, we need that clash of, of the opposition. It's not just what you think, but what what where your limits are. And some of these, <clears throat> perhaps these trolls or whatever, I uh, uh, sort of testing these limits and, and so on. But I, I, I'm wondering at what point does it become, especially in the next four years, so fatiguing um, that these sort of same uh, sort of limits are tested, that we get so tired of it that we sort of stop doing it. And, and David Trump's, um, you know, uh, terrifying dystopia that he wrote about in, in his um, piece in The Atlantic this month seemed, seemed to be worryingly sort of accurate where we're going in the next four years. You're afraid that we is, can be numbed. Yeah, which is where we're getting numbed and, and power is being redistributed so that these sort of debates we have on free speech are sitting in the backwaters away from where the things actually sort of power is, is residing nowadays. Well, I, I think all of those are, are legitimate concerns, you know, particularly when, you know, you, you have this, this drumbeat. Um, one of the things that David Frum wrote about is, is, the, is, is the danger that people, citizens, withdraw from public affairs. They withdraw from politics because they have been so beaten down or ground down or so cynical. And, of course, this plays into the hands of, the, into the hands of any authoritarian regime. But, again, I, I, I think I like to, uh, the way, Nico, the way you were putting it, basically think of censorship as just sort of another, you know, weapon that the state has and whether or not, you know, we as citizens should be jealous and guarding, um, you know, those progress and, and, and reluctant to give the state that weapon. Yeah, absolutely. Censorship is essentially breaking the thermometer. You know, if you break the thermometer, that doesn't change the temperature, but it's really important to know how the world is. Well, we have to leave it there. Nico Perino is the director of communications for the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, host of So to Speak, the free speech podcast. Nico, thanks so much. I appreciate thanks it. Thanks for having me, Charlie. And that's all for Indivisible tonight. Indivisible is public radio's new national conversation about life in the first 100 days of the new administration tomorrow night. Minnesota Public Radio's Kathy Wurzer takes your calls about America's urban-rural divide. Until then, you can keep the conversation going at IndivisibleRadio.com, where you can leave us a comment or a voicemail anytime. I'm Charlie Sykes. See you next Wednesday, assuming we're all still around. If you like the Indivisible podcast, rate and review it, and tell your friends. And thanks for listening.